Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And, you know, we have this ongoing relationship with the Reginald F. Lewis Museum downtown. Uh, and uh, something com- is coming up on April the 1st, identifying family traditions from the Work Pro- Progress Administration's uh, slave narratives that happened in the 1930s. And we are joined by Dr. Ayeli Ichele, uh, who is a postdoc fellow in African-American history at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum and the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, who joins us. She's working on all this stuff and has looked at the slave narratives out of that project, that, uh, the slave narratives of Marylanders. So welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, so this is let's go back to the beginning here and talk a little bit about the WPA, sure. what they actually did and, and what they collected. And when? Right. So FDR uh, sends out approximately 6,600 writers, um, just as a part of the Works Progress Administration, but specifically uh, the Federal Writers Project. Uh, He's trying to create jobs, and um, these are mostly working class people. They're mostly young, uh, mostly white. Uh, not all white. Not all so, white. Most. So Neil Houston, many other famous right. folks. Were, Absolutely. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll talk about them in a minute. Yeah. Um, <sighs> but but they, they are sent out to collect what what eventually becomes kind of a, a, a body of, of writing about kind of the common man in this country, mm-hmm. the everyday man, the, the people whose stories who are not typically recorded and remembered as part of significant history. And uh, in collecting these stories of the folk, um, one major project is the slave narratives. The, the The goal is to collect as many narratives of formerly enslaved people as possible, and they collect about 2,300 narratives nationwide. Amazing. And, that's, and we're talking 90 years yes. or so after the end of legal slavery in America. Absolutely. It's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> and so you focused your work on, in the 89, on, the, on the narratives over these 89 pages that came out of Maryland. Yes, yes. So uh, for for the purposes of, you know, my work at the Reginald Lewis, um, I've been able to kind of just focus on the Maryland narr- narratives. However, there are, there are so many that I've looked at because they are also connected with Virginia. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, right. the Carolinas. I mean, then you know, because the average enslaved person is moved about seven times during his or her life. And so... For, you know, is changes hands and changes ownership. And so um, the narratives are based in Maryland, at least in part, but they connect to other places as well. So I'm curious, when you look at these narratives, how many were there all together? Uh, oh, gosh. I this since I have it maybe, in front of me. Maybe 13, 12. It, it, I don't know. Maybe more than that. It maybe. I've only had a chance to get through like three quarters of them before you came in the door. Because I wasn't, right. But I did get through a lot of them. Um, yeah, it looks like about about that. Um and so the the names, some of them are familiar, too, which is interesting to me, from Maryland. So yes. That, re- oh, really, okay, yeah. right. We didn't ask those questions about the last names and who. Right. Yeah. Foot, uh, the Max. Right. The Wiggins. I mean, these are names that Henson. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? So names of I'm curious we know. If, if their descendants are, like. Still alive and well and walking among yeah, us. And yes. Yeah, and may not know these stories. Right. Or may. We don't know. Right. So I'm curious what, what, as a historian, um, and as a black woman, growing up in this country, what, what kind of shocked you about the narratives? What, 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 what hit you about the narratives that you were not expecting mm. as you read through them? I think I would have uh. answered the question differently when I, you know, when I was a, a younger person. Um, 
that. You're so old right now. I am so old, oh. right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, well, I, I should say, before I got a PhD in I'm, history. I'm teasing you. Right, right. yes. Um, but, I, you know, I think after kind of going through, you know, my training, uh, which I, I owe all the credit to my, my professors at Howard University in the history department, uh, which has its own connection to these stories, um, I think what really struck me looking at the narratives again as a, a more seasoned scholar is what I didn't see in the narratives. Uh-huh. Uh, they are a wealth of information, certainly about um, the kind of geography and the mapping of where people were located and the different types of labor that were involved in slavery, uh, the the types of food ways and the mm. the family relationships or the ways in which family relationships were ruptured by trade and sale and displacement. Um, however, I think that, you know, again, going back later as a scholar, you know, I was kind of struck by what I didn't see in the stories that I didn't hear that I had learned about in other places. You know, the, like the, narratives, the narratives, I think John Blassingame, um, who, who wrote The Slave Community, uh, he, he actually described the narratives as um, simplistic and, hmm. and, and talked about the ways in which they kind of make, depict slavery as too positive. These uh, narratives do? Yes, yes. I was going to ask that question. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. And and I'll and I'll, I'll I'll just say this when I when I first started graduate school in the history program, um, my my advisor said, okay, if you want to study the history of slavery in this country, be prepared. It is like reading a horror film. You are the ones who will go into the archives and read the papers, the <clears throat> honest to goodness what happened, and it is trauma, and and you must be ready to kind of sort through it because the narratives that we have inherited are not telling the whole story. And and I think going back and looking at the the narratives we have to think about these are African people or people of African descent who are in their you know the the, the twilight years of their lives and they are being interviewed by mainly white people, white interviewers. So there is still a racial etiquette. This is the 1930s. This is the the aftermath of the Great Depression. This, I mean, tensions, lynching, the height of lynching in this country. Jim Crow, of course, is at its height. So there is an etiquette about what is acceptable to say and what is not acceptable to say. So, so skewed because the so many the, the, the interviewers were white and how, what their relationship might have been, in right. a subservient sense, in a fearful sense, Absolutely. in other ways. Right, because these, these these dynamics continue, of course, after you know, legal emancipation. And so um, so there is so much truth and so much richness in the narratives. However, you've got kind of the, the, the strategy of concealment of certain types of narratives, certain types of stories that some people may not have felt comfortable sharing with interviewers, interviewers they didn't know. And then the interviewers themselves, you actually see a lot of their own voices in the narratives. I and mean, there's a ton of editing that happens on the back end as well. So did you see it? Maybe you didn't because maybe they didn't exist in Maryland when you were studying, mm-hmm. but was there a difference between how a formerly enslaved person would respond to Zora Houston or Charles S. Johnson when they were interviewing people as opposed to when white folks were interviewing people? Absolutely. Uh, and that is, <laughs> that is um, it's interesting because, uh, so for instance, there is a collection of papers, the Ophelia Settle Egypt's Egypt papers, which you can find at the Moreland Spingarn Research Center at Howard. And there were groups of 
you know, African-American scholars who went out in the 1920s, the early 30s, and got this started before the Federal Writers Project kind of uh-huh. joined the, the action process. Right. And, um, you know, when you read stories that are collected by the, the African-American researchers, you have way more um, evidence of resistance. Uh, you have a greater kind of appreciation of the experiences of women and children in slavery and the brutality. And I think, so for instance, there's a stark contrast between kind of an overabundance of, you know, the games that enslaved children played that you find as a major theme in the the Federal Writers Project. But And the food. Right. right? The food that they ate. And and nobody got whipped on this plantation. Nobody was beaten on this plantation. And there's always that emphatic statement. No one was whipped. Right, 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 right. right. (laughs) Ever. Um, No one ran away. Or I only saw one person run away in my life. There was a number of them. Right. 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 And and so those, um, the agency of the enslaved people to resist is kind of minimized and you know, and not written about very heavily, certainly not in a lot of detail in most of the narratives, not all. Uh, it, it certainly comes through in, in some of them, but it, when you read the, the, those collected by African-American researchers, those themes that kind of give that agency back and talk about those intra-group dynamics are much more apparent. So were any of the interviewers African-American in Maryland, or were they all white people? Um, I think to my recollection, there may have been one or two, uh, although I'm still kind of working on that. I'm still trying to figure out who is who. So does any one particular narrative pop out at you that you that really grabs you for, an, for any number of mm. strange and interesting and frightening but powerful reasons? <laughs> right. Well, um my my direct supervisor Charles Bethay, he's the, the the chief curator and head of collections at the museum. He and I are interested in uh, looking at slave pens and slave jails and ways Pe- pens, pens, pens right, right, right obviously further right. incarcerating people who are already captive right, on right, the right. plantations for reasons of you know punishment for certain you know perceived infractions. And there's a narrative here that really describes uh, one of the. Um, plantations, I guess, that has kind of this elaborate jail. You know, they so they have the the big house and they have the slave quarters, but people don't really understand that some some situations, they, you know, some estates had jails built on the property. You know, to to you know, in which to punish folks. And so there's a, I think it's Silas Jackson. Yes, yeah, and, I read yeah. that one. Right, right. And Silas Jackson was actually born in Virginia. Um, but he talks about this this elaborate um, jail in which the men were kept underneath the ground and the women were kept above ground and there was some, you know, sexual abuse going on with the women. And, you know, it's rare to read that amount of detail about negative, violent experiences. And certainly the experiences of women were talked about in very polite ways, if at all. Because he was a little boy then. Right, right. When he made the amazing thing, there's another narrative I've read in there about who was also one of the kind of all these mm-hmm. white people were nice, but they did whip people. And he talked about how terrified he was hearing this person being whipped and seeing that, you know, right. those, those things were there. Right. But they were actually not as prevalent as, you, as I would have expected in these exactly. narratives. Exactly. And I, and I think from, from <clears throat> what I understand, um, the spectacle of the violence was important for all of the other enslaved people. And in many cases, they were forced to watch, what, regardless of their age. And that is... Black children and white children were forced to watch the violence as a part of a desensitizing process because the violence is inherently necessary to enslave otherwise reasonably intelligent people who naturally want freedom. 
right. as humans. And so this is a part of the thingification process, desensitizing people to this level of violence and bloodshed. Uh, and and so for them to say, oh, I didn't see it, but I heard it, or I wasn't around, or I never heard, you know, that that to me is a red flag because that goes completely against everything I've learned um, about slavery from the perspective of the slaveholders themselves because, you know, you can also read their journals and their diaries and their accounts of what they've done, and there are copious records on that as well. Have you and read those as well? They were a lot less polite about what they, they what did. What they did. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, it, I mean, according to their worldview, this was not a problem. It wasn't an issue. It wasn't a moral dilemma for, for many people who owned other people. So what 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 for our listeners who might come listen to this April the first what 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 for you is the power of the narrative what do people do we walk away with from this you know what I mean just because because you also when we have these programs some people not everybody but a few mm-hmm. people call and go I'm so tired of hearing slave narratives yeah. I, I want to hear about modern stuff right. but there's but there's unless unless we understand the roots mm-hmm. we don't understand where we are right in many ways right. right. Well, this is a direct relationship to what we're ha- what we're dealing with now. Uh, you know, I think in some people's minds, the, the passage of the 13th Amendment meant that, you know, all of Euro-America woke up and just let go of all those attitudes and ideas. Oh, they didn't? <laughs> no, no, sorry. <laughs> uh, I wish it had, but yeah, no. But, and, and, and so we really have to deal with what Martin Luther King calls the thingification of people. Of African descent in this in this country and other countries in the Western world, we so this these narratives are um, just a very small glimpse into the lives and experiences of people who are in the process of recovering their status as human beings in the world, you know. And that that that's what's important about these narratives. They had relationships. They had a value system. You know, you can read that in the narratives. You can see that. Family was central. The connectedness to one's parents, the the taking time at the end of backbreaking labor to sit with each other and tell stories, or <clears throat> to you know to braid someone's hair. Those are therapeutic traditions. Those are caring traditions that speak back to the fact that these are human beings who had a will to live and love and have you know exist. And these are the things that re- are remembered by octogenarians and people who are 90 these moments matter to them you know and I'm I'm I can't even remember when I was you know seven eight nine years old <laughs> at the time and so um, there was an effort placed uh, there was an effort made among enslaved people to mark out the significance of their lives and that's what I think is important about n- any kind of narrative that we have been able to collect you know what you just described. The two things popped out when you <clears throat> um, the storytelling mm-hmm. and hair braiding. Yeah. That uh, I kind of feel for the roots of that in the black world today, right? Mm-hmm. And the and the key role that those two phenomena play in the black world. Mm-hmm. And and they're still with us, right? And so I mean to, to understand the roots of that being being a tool of liberation of mastering something when you were being mastered. Absolutely. Right? Right. Mastering mastering yourself. I mean, even something as, as we think of as basic as a hair braid, you know, a braiding pattern, 
these had significance. I mean, these people didn't come from African society and then just get wiped clean of all cultural understandings of themselves and the world. And so, you know, they, when they were braiding hair, it meant, okay, I care about you. You're a person. This hair can signify who you are. I mean, a hair braiding pattern can indicate your status in society, you, you know, the merits you had earned, the honor you had shown as an individual, whether you were married or not. Um, women began to braid maps into each other's hair you know, to freedom. This is this is the river. This is this is where you go if you're trying to get to this right. other place. I mean they right. there was deep significance <clears throat> to everything that we did and um and certainly it had to take on new meanings in this new context. But I mean if we look at today and the ways in which certain black cultural practices are seen as threatening, are seen as, you know, primitive or less than inferior, that that is that is a carryover, but also what what I'm interested in doing, and especially you know April first, I hope to talk more about this, is getting us to really appreciate and understand all of the deep philosophical um, and political meanings of the things that we still do. Um, because we're still again the reason why we have to say Black Lives Matter, the reason we have to declare that still have to say it. is because of right. this history, you know, and this is why the narratives are important, and this is the direct connection to today. We are still seeking that out. Well, it's important for people to understand these narratives. Mm-hmm. It's important for, for people who are not just black folks to understand these right. narratives. Right. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that it, it, it's there's an awakening, and this is part of the awakening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And having young scholars like yourself opening that door to help in the awakening, right. I think is really critically important. This is the start. This is This is... Reading things like this really help us get an understanding of people on both sides of the issue and how much more work we have to do. What mm-hmm. are we What are we trying to unpack in our interactions with each other in this society that we have to live in together? Are there any of the stories that kind of hit you that, 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 that stayed, stayed in your head as you were reading yes. them and maybe ones that maybe were juxtaposed against another? One of my, my <clears throat> favorite kind of victorious stories, my, one of my favorite triumphant stories. And, and I'm a scholar that focuses on um, the experiences of women, enslaved African women and resistance. That is uh, my that's my wheelhouse. Gotcha. And so Good one wheelhouse. of my one of my, yes, <laughs> uh, an, an understudied wheelhouse. I am very lonely. Mm-hmm. But um, is is uh, Thomas Foote, I believe? Thomas Foote. Thomas Foote was free, right? Yeah, I read that one. That's and a really good one. It's amazing. Yeah. And I love his mother because she's the centerpiece of this story to me. She's she's a free woman who is a midwife and a healer. And her, her herbs and her stones or crystals yes. are more effective than the doctor who's going around and trying to cure that, people. They took that stone off this one enslaved right. man and said that she gave it to him and it heals everything around. And it around. heals everything, right. right. The doctor <laughs> couldn't figure it out. And this man is on, you know, knocking on death's door and then she comes in and, um, but eventually she's jailed. She's put in jail for this, for, for her effectiveness, essentially because she's practicing, quote unquote, voodooism. Right. And, and, and spirituality. Not that'd be European. This is voodooism. Right. Voodooism. <laughs> and, you know, um, the word voodoo is so troublesome um, in the English language, voodoo. not to be confused with voodoo, which is actually a religion. Right. Um, but this is, this is, this is, this not only connects to the stories of enslaved women, but Really, many women who practice midwifery, many women who practice, you know, outside of kind of the the growing, kind of elaborating, kind of male Western medical establishment, were kind of there was a witch hunt. I mean, there's a reiteration of this witch hunt idea, and they are they are jailed, they are killed, they are attacked, uh, and and so she 
she is kind of a part of this, but the community supported her. The community understood her value and her significance. And these are a part of our traditions. If we, you know, and now we can go and kind of go to Whole Foods and you, you know, because they they actually list some herbs in here, which is really useful. You know, some of these enslaved people are talking about bone set and life everlasting and all these wonderful herbs, and you can look them up now and on the the internet, and you can go to the store and buy an essential oil that is now now we figured out. But the, she was doing it then. Right, right, right. And so that's that. I love stories like that because, you know, essentially we're, we're we are sometimes engaging in our own culture. We just don't know it. We we have to kind of go to Whole Foods and purchase our <laughs> culture back, <laughs> you know, that that really kind of was already in existence. And it speaks to the relationship with indigenous folks, with the native folks of this land that we learn so much from in order to continue our traditions. We understood the importance of herbalism. I mean, that's a part of everyone's tradition. Uh, it's just some folks underwent a process of forgetting in the name of, of colonization, in the name of, you know, the, the building of capitalism. Right. But, right. you know, she represents kind of a return to giving it its proper value. So are you really should take the time uh, on a week from Saturday, April the 1st, uh, April Fool's Day, you will not be fooled by doing this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Come at noon to the Reginald F. Lewis Museum. Uh, Ancestors' Voices Identifying Feminine Traditions in the Work Progress Administration Slave Narratives, uh, presented by Dr. Yeli Chelly, who is a postdoc fellow uh, in African American History at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum and the Department of Africana Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. But come on down. More information at 443. 443- 263-1816. We'll have all this on our website as well at steinershow.org. And Dr. Ayeli Echelli, it's been a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're about to go to break, but stay with us. When we come back, we have a brand new episode of Democracy in Crisis. And on our way to break, I want to remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeCU Baltimore's Credit Union, which is a proud partner for the 12th year of the Baltimore Cash Camp for Money Power Day, taking place on April the 1st, Holly Western High School Complex on Cold Spring from 9 to 3 p.m. It's the region's biggest financial fitness fair. To show up and come on in. Congressman Elijah Cummings will kick off the day. More information at moneypowerday.org. 